Hey kids, I'd like to introduce you to a new podcast you're going to love. On behalf of myself, Morgan Rector, of one of the most horrific true crime podcasts, Human Monsters, I'd like to ask you this question. Do you like to travel? Do you like picturesque locations and getting away from it all? Fun fact, there is a morgue on every cruise ship. After all, people die everywhere. Why wouldn't they die on a cruise ship in the Bahamas? Well, this new podcast has all that and murder. Murder. It's called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that took place on vacation. Hosted by true crime fanatic, her comedy writer husband, and his TV producing partner, Slaycation brings a unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, and what-the-fuck stories of vacations gone horribly wrong. From the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorne, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff, to Angelica and Vincent, two recently engaged lovebirds whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended underwater, each episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that'll intrigue you. It's the discussion between a longtime married couple and business partners who happen to be Emmy-nominated TV producers. Each episode of Slaycation also includes humor, takeaway, and travel tips that will keep your next vacation from being your last. If you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club. A daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into the Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to the Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international best-selling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. 
It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Robert Picton was a pig farmer. Robert Picton was a serial killer. Robert Picton is a nauseating figure in Canada's history. Indeed, by many Canadians' estimation, he would be considered a pig in his own right. Only in comparison to the mammal central to his career in animal agriculture, the public perception of Picton is far less dignified. You see, neither pigs nor prostitutes fared well when they came into close contact with Robert Willie Picton. He was a butcher who transcended the divide that normally acts as a moral boundary between the links of the food chain. His human victims may never have guessed that they were about to fall back into it. The story of Robert William Willie Picton began on October 24, 1949 in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada. His parents were Louise Picton Wright and his father was Leonard Picton. His mother was most involved with Robert's upbringing. Leonard's involvement was mostly limited to dealing out brutal beatings when he deemed Robert to be in want of discipline. Beyond this dynamic of parent-child abuse, little is known about their relationship. Leonard never took much of an interest in his children's lives. Though Louise took it upon herself to raise the children, she felt short when it came to nurturing. She was the proprietor of a meat company and was required to work long hours to keep it afloat. Robert, his brother David, and his sister Linda grew up in a dysfunctional household. Louise did not consider their education to be a top priority and insisted that they contribute effort to the pork business with every available minute. They didn't get to spend much time with friends or do their homework because they were too busy slopping pigs and attending to other chores around the farm. The farm was their entire livelihood and took first priority over everything. Robert was a quiet, withdrawn child. He went for long periods of time without speaking. He would hide if his father intended to beat him. Though it hasn't been confirmed by Robert Picton himself, one of his childhood friends claims that at one point, Robert crawled into the gutted carcass of a large hog when his father was on the warpath. Before going to prison, Robert had lived on the pig farm his entire life. It had not been a pleasant place for him to live and had even been the site of much of the most traumatic experiences of his life. In interviews, Robert offered his interpretation of what normalcy means. He once told a story about the birth of a calf he was especially attached to. He recalled an incident that may have been formative and prescient. I'm going to keep this calf for the rest of my life. Then I came back from school two weeks later. The calf was gone. I says around the house, where's my calf? They say, maybe you should take a walk down the barn. 
I said, no, what, no way. They kill animals down there. Robert went to the barn. Anyway, there's my calf, upside down, cleaned out, butchered. I couldn't talk to anybody for about four days. This incident was deeply troubling for Robert. He would only confide about it with the people he trusted most. He never did come to terms with those feelings. Life wasn't any easier for him at school. He was considered slow and was placed in special education classes, which left him feeling undignified and humiliated. Though he likely had a learning disability, he was never tested, as the practice was uncommon when he was a child. As a consequence, he fell behind more and more every year. He dropped out of school halfway because his frustration with his inability to keep up academically and the constant bullying became more than he could bear. While many parents would have become deeply upset by this decision, Louise couldn't have been happier because it meant Robert could devote his time to being a full-time farmhand. Sure enough, he spent nearly every waking moment doing farm chores. Robert bonded with his siblings, especially his brother. His social life ended at the outermost boundaries of the farm's property. He had no friends and never dated. Though being socially inactive was partially due to his quiet manner, intellectual disability, and isolation from society on the farm, there was another factor that kept him isolated from the outside world. His hygiene was repugnant. He invariably reeked of dead animals and manure. His hair and clothing were unwashed. None of the girls he came into contact with outside the farm would go near him. Though his hygiene drew a great deal of criticism and ridicule from outsiders, he wasn't bothered by their reactions. In fact, he was a model of self-acceptance. He hated taking showers. He claimed his reason was that his mother forced them on him when he was a child. One friend he managed to retain at some point would incur the moniker of, quote, the nag. She must have acquired this handle when she persuaded him after significant goading that he smelled so bad that he needed to take a bath. She told him that if he didn't clean up, she would terminate the friendship. Under this threat, he would oblige. But somehow, he would emerge from the bathroom still smelling foul. It's hardly surprising. Since his birth, he spent his life surrounded by dead animals, rotten animal parts, slop, and manure. His skin was similar to the pigs he slaughtered. It was leathery and putrid. While many people marginalized him because he was immersed irrevocably in the world of the pig farm, it was the only place where he felt safe and accepted. This despite his tough, no-nonsense mother and his abusive father. He wasn't put off by the smell of perished, rotting pig flesh because he had used it as a shield from the threat of his father's beatings. There was no outlet for Robert to express his anger in this environment, and he hadn't spent enough time with outsiders to develop the social skills to ask girls for dates. So while his libido was typical for a young man, he lacked an outlet to express it. He was taught nothing about sex and relationships. He was only taught how to slaughter animals and prepare their remains for the marketplace. There's one particular incident that indicates how his mother failed to instill in Robert the kind of moral framework that is consistent with mainstream Canadian society. When David Picton received his driver's license, he drove his father's pickup truck into town. Along the way, he ran over 14-year-old Tim Barrett, who lived nearby. Barrett's body was mangled and seriously wounded. 
He sustained a fractured skull with subcranial hemorrhage and his pelvis was both fractured and dislocated. David returned to the Picton homestead to report what had happened to Louise. David returned to the scene with her. Tim Barrett was still alive. Louise, assuming Tim Barrett's injuries were fatal, decided there was nothing that could be done about his condition. After this pronouncement, she bent over, pushed Tim Barrett's body, and rolled him to the edge of the road. She continued to roll him, sending him down an embankment and into a deep slough. An autopsy determined that Tim Barrett's injuries were not life-threatening, and he died from drowning. Had Louise reported the accident to the authorities, Tim Barrett would have survived. The lesson Robert took away from this was that self-preservation was key. The influence from the incident and his mother's actions proved to be long-lasting. Louise died of cancer in 1976. Leonard also died in the late 1970s. Their children were now on their own, and they struggled to keep the farm functional and profitable. They kept this up for a while, but after a few years they became overwhelmed. They agreed that they would only keep enough pigs to keep their neighbors supplied with meat. The problem was, the amount of money they made was not enough to pay the farm's bills, and they fell deeply in debt. After years of struggle, they made a deal that changed life on the farm forever. It had nothing to do with expanding their meat clientele. Over the span of 1994 and 1995, real estate developers paid the Picton siblings for segments of their land for an estimated $5.16 million. The sweeping changes in their lives soon became evident. The cheap hand-me-down clothing, reliance on port to supply them with almost all their dietary needs, the run-down vehicles. This way of life would become a thing of the past. Robert didn't change much on a personal level. He remained his quiet self and lived a moderately conservative lifestyle which excluded any consumption of alcohol or drugs. His siblings, on the other hand, were determined to enjoy their newfound wealth at every opportunity. They began throwing parties at the farm. Their world began to open up socially, and they started making friends. Though it was mostly due to their elevated financial status, they were no longer pariahs, and they savored this new state of affairs. They renamed the property, quote, Piggy Palace. The farm became, at least informally, a pleasure resort. No longer purveyors of pork products, the newly christened Piggy Palace was a hotbed of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. In short, it became known in the Port Coquitlam and surrounding area as the place to party. Robert perceived himself as a businessman. He created a non-profit, quote, society, as he called it. He called it Piggy Palace Good Time Society. It wasn't unusual for events thrown at the Piggy Palace to be attended by as many as a thousand party-goers. Neighbors began complaining about these events to the local law enforcement authorities. Not only did they find the drugs, alcohol, and sexual activity abhorrent, but they reported hearing women scream at all hours of the night. Allegedly, underage girls were forced to copulate with adult males at the palace, but the police did not investigate these reports. They would only begin to investigate the place months after they received the bulk of the complaints. At that point, Robert Picton's relationship with law enforcement hit a briar patch. In the years to come, he would struggle to disentangle himself from it. Due to the frequent complaints about his parties and his inability or unwillingness to submit financial statements to legal authorities, his, quote, society 
lost its official nonprofit status in January 2000. Shutting down the parties at the Piggy Palace became a prime objective of the Vancouver Police Department, and they launched an investigation into Robert Picton's activities. One of their findings was that he frequently recruited prostitutes from Vancouver's downtown east side, also known as the Low Track, to bring back to the farm. David was also observed bringing prostitutes back to the palace. It was at this point that it occurred to the VPD that a larger criminal phenomenon in Vancouver could have ties to the Pictons. Several prostitutes went missing from the Low Track area. In September 1998, Vancouver police initiated an investigative task force to locate their whereabouts and determine if they were still alive. The investigation was long-lasting, spanning years. It received international exposure, and its expenditures ran into the millions. Almost a hundred women were raced from the streets of Vancouver, and their families and friends demanded answers. The mystery would be solved one day, and few were prepared to learn the truth and the modus operandi involved. Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs, and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. Rex Sherman is a demon that walks among us, a predator that ruined families. The Lisk Long Island Serial Killer podcast was shocked when the news broke of Rex Hewerman's arrest. After more than a decade of searching, law enforcement officials had finally pieced together enough evidence to bring formal charges against Rex Hewerman. Initially charged with three murders, Hewerman is now officially charged with all four deaths in the Gilgo 4 case. I'm your host, Chris Moss, and the List podcast will be releasing new episodes with interviews and fresh insight on the case as Rex Hewerman awaits trial in Long Island. While we are relieved by the arrest, the List podcast team will be working hard to share new developments and perspectives as we get them. So please keep your eyes and ears out for new episodes, and if you haven't already, please listen to seasons one and two of Lisk, Long Island Serial Killer, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, do you have trouble sleeping? Then maybe you should check out The Sleepy Podcast. It's a show where I read old books in the public domain to help you get to sleep. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of classic stories like A Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice, Winnie the Pooh, stories that are great for adults and kids alike. For years now, Sleepy has helped millions of people catch some much-needed Zs, start their next day off fresh, and discover old books that they didn't know they loved. So, whether you have a tough time snoozing or you just like a good bedtime story, fluff up the cool side of your pillow and tune into Sleepy. Unless you're driving, then please don't listen to Sleepy. Find Sleepy on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. 
New episodes each week. Sweet dreams. It shouldn't surprise anyone that women would disappear en masse after making the low track their base of operations. The neighborhood earned its seedy reputation in the 1970s as being competitive in crime and squalor with some of America's most notorious ghettos. Prostitutes have long been a fixture in the low track, with some starting out as young as the age of 11. Drug lords and rival cartels have fought violent and bloody turf wars, marked by shootings and stabbings. Drug overdoses abound. One-fourth of the neighborhood's denizens are HIV positive. Amid all this, someone was preying on women working in the sex trade, and it posed a bigger threat than any other aspect of the district's industry of crime. Since the mid-1970s, women by the hundreds have gone missing in the low track. Those who have remained have, in equal numbers, been abused physically and sexually by their johns and pimps. The streets are rife with death, addiction and overdoses, and sexual perversion. Vancouver police mostly turned a blind eye to what was happening in the low track. They saw the neighborhood as a lost cause. Meanwhile, bodies were piling up, and the relatives and friends of individuals on the missing women list began to apply pressure on the police to find the parties responsible. The police had their excuses. Because the women reported missing were prostitutes, the officers argued that they most likely lived transient lifestyles and could simply have relocated on a whim. They also pointed out that nobody ever cooperated with the investigations. Pimps and drug dealers weren't about to cooperate with law enforcement, and the prostitutes didn't either, knowing that to do so would leave them beaten up or dead as a consequence. What the police knew officially was that women and female children began to disappear around 1983, so 15 years passed before they acted on the available intel. Soon after interviewing associates of the missing women, it occurred to Detective Dave Dixon that a serial killer may be responsible. He kept this theory to himself and his colleagues, concerned that if the community were to hear it, they would become alarmed. It was only prostitutes that were being targeted, and their bodies were never located. Soon after the missing women list was created, a task force was doubled in a month to contend with all the women reported missing. It doubled again in two months. Sixteen women were reported missing. By 2001, there were 54 women on the list. Still, prostitutes refused to cooperate with police. Even after they were beaten or found in dumpsters left for dead, they would not talk. Once they recovered from these incidents, they were back on the streets in dedication to prostitution and or addiction. At this juncture, 85 investigators were working the case. Women continued to disappear at an alarming rate. Regardless of the amount of staff and resources, the VPD dedicated to the case. The authorities cast their net as widely as possible, even to the point of considering serial killers that may have visited Canada at some point during the history of their killing sprees. Gary Leon Green River Killer Ridgeway was examined. They also looked at Dayton Leroy Rogers, aka the Happy Face Killer. Robert Yates, murderer of 13 prostitutes in Seattle, and rapist John Eric Armstrong. No evidence from any of their cases linked them to the low-track murders. The last suspect considered for the time being was Ronald Richard McCauley, a convicted rapist 
who had ties to the Low Track. He is believed to have killed four Low Track prostitutes in 1995 and 1996. No evidence linking him to the crimes was ever found, so he was never convicted. Investigators turned again to Robert and David Picton. David had once been convicted for sexual assault, and Robert had developed a habit of picking up hookers in the low track. However, the suspicions of the VPD were mostly just based on rumor and theory, so they were at a loss for valid criteria to issue warrants. Because he was at the Piggy Palace where David committed the sexual assault, and where low track prostitutes were frequently brought, they began to take a closer look at the property. Again, this was based in conjecture. In other words, they hit a dead end. The first lucky break in years emerged in the form of a man named Bill Hiscox. He contacted the Vancouver police and informed them that he felt strongly that all the women who had gone missing from the low track had disappeared due to the actions of Robert Picton. The only problem with this lead, despite the strictly anecdotal nature of his evidence, was that Bill Hiscox was considered a little seedy in his own right. He developed an addiction to drugs and alcohol in the aftermath of the death of his wife. It was then that he befriended Robert and David Picton because they provided him with drugs and shelter. Hiscox wanted to party to forget his grief, and the Picton brothers threw wild parties, so they got along like a house on fire. He told police that he was being helped off drugs and, quote, sort of adopted, unquote, by an older woman who had been an on-again, off-again girlfriend of Robert Picton. This posed a potential problem. The officers who interviewed Hiscox wondered if he had a motive to inform on Picton any way he could, even if it meant implicating him as a suspect in a killing spree. Hiscox insisted that he came forward after reading about the missing women from Low Track. He described Picton as quiet and difficult to talk to. He also said he, quote, had no use for men, unquote. The officers found this last statement confusing, but they had no trouble accepting that Picton was different. Hiscox was probed to describe Piggy Palace. He said it was a, quote, creepy-looking place and that it was patrolled by a 600-pound wild boar. He also mentioned that Robert was charged in 1997 with attempted murder. Somehow the VPD missed the paper trail that led to the charge. He was alleged to have stabbed a prostitute named Wendy Lynn Eistetter at the farm. As she described it, she was handcuffed but managed to free herself after stabbing Robert, but that he stabbed her several more times. The case fell apart in 1998 when the prosecuting attorney argued, effectively, that Eistetter would not be a reliable witness because she was a drug addict and a prostitute. Bill Hiscox notified police that Robert had a collection of purses and identification cards, quote, of all kinds of women, unquote, in his trailer on the farm. He said he visited downtown Vancouver, quote, to pick up women often, unquote. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police joined the task force in 1999, and collectively they gathered enough probable cause to conduct a series of three searches at the Piggy Palace. The search yielded no clues or evidence that could link Robert Picton to the missing women. Though they still suspected him on an intuitive level, there just wasn't enough concrete proof that would hold up in court. Still, Robert and David Picton remained on the list of suspects. They were no longer under surveillance after this phase of the investigation. There was soon an uptick in the rate of women being reported as missing. 
However, this activity would fall to nothing with no missing women being reported over a two-year span. All police assumed was that if Robert Picton was the killer, he was scared by the investigation and ceased all homicidal activity. But again, this never advanced beyond the theory stage. Everything would change in 2002, just as it appeared that the case was a lost cause. Another search of Piggy Palace was conducted on February 7, 2002. They also searched along the property line that separated the Pictons' land from that of a neighbor friend. It was then that the police made a shocking discovery. They found the bodies of Serena Abbotsway and Mona Wilson. What disturbed the officers in particular was the fact that the bodies had been butchered. Both victims were on the missing women list, and the officers speculated that the rest of the women on the list may have suffered a similar fate. Though the police kept their information under wraps, there was some leakage to the press. The police were reluctant to come to any firm conclusions with scant evidence available. The media, on the other hand, reported that more body parts had been located and they blamed Robert Picton for the crimes. At the time, Picton was held in custody due to a weapon-related charge, but he was released after posting bail. Immediately after leaving jail, he was placed under surveillance by the investigators. Robert Picton was arrested again. This time, the date was February 22, 2002, and the charges were of two counts of murder in the first degree. This was for the killings of Abbott's Way and Wilson. The Picton case was receiving nationwide media focus at this point. He was soon recognized as the worst serial killer in Canadian history. On April 2, 2002, more evidence was collected on the farm, and Picton was charged with the murders of Jacqueline McDonnell, Diane Rock, and Heather Bottomley. He hadn't yet arraigned for the murders of the first two women found, but more and more evidence mounted that suggested he was guilty of even more murders than originally thought. On April 9, 2002, DNA evidence located at the farm linked Robert Picton to the murders of Andrea Josbury and Brenda Wolfe. On September 20, 2002, more evidence was found at the palace and four more charges were laid. The dead bodies of Georgina Papin, Patricia Johnson, Helen Hallmark, and Jennifer Firminger were found on the property. On October 3, 2002, a severed human head and hands were found on the farm and identified as having belonged to Mona Wilson. In court, Robert Picton was charged with four more murders, those of Heather Gabriel Chinnick, Tanya Marlowe Holick, Sherry Irving, and Inga Monique Hall. By the time the first few weeks of 2004 rolled around, 30 dead women had been found on Robert Picton's farm. He was now charged with 22 counts of murder and 15 counts of first-degree murder. The discrepancy of the charges is due to the fact that many of the remains were unidentifiable. Police reports indicated that body parts were located in a wood chipper and a human mandible was found in a pig pen. Some had speculated that Picton was feeding his victims to his pigs and the jawbone served as possible evidence that this had indeed taken place. Human remains were found in a freezer alongside unsold pork. By October 2004, the search of the Picton farm had taken 21 months and was conducted by over 100 anthropologists. 
They linked, through DNA, a large group of women who had been included on the missing women list to the remains that were found. An internal report noted that some of the human remains were mixed with the pork Picton and his siblings sold from the farm. In other words, their meat customers unknowingly practiced cannibalism. At this time, six more victims were identified when their remains were found on the property. Yvonne Bain, Don Cree, Wendy Crawford, Andrea Borhaven, Carrie Koski, and Kara Ellis. The Toronto Star published a report that outlined a possible motive for his crimes. Picton had allegedly enticed prostitutes to the farm with promises of drugs, food, and lavish parties held in their honor. Though he never consumed drugs or alcohol until around 2001, he soon after developed a serious addiction to crack cocaine after keeping company with several drug-addicted prostitutes. Many believe that it was under the influence of crack when he committed the slayings. On May 26, 2005, 12 more charges of first-degree murder were filed against Robert Picton. Kara Ellis, Andrea Borhaven, Deborah Lynn Jones, Marnie Frey, Tiffany Drew, Carrie Kolsky, Sarah DeVries, Cynthia Felix, Angela Jardine, Wendy Crawford, Diana Melnick, and an unidentified woman known as Jane Doe. The number of his first-degree murder charges now stood at 27. In 2003, a preliminary inquiry was held. The contents of the hearing were concealed behind a publication ban that was lifted in 2010. It was revealed during this hearing that Picton was charged with attempted murder after an altercation with a prostitute in 1997 at the Piggy Palace. As the victim described the incident, Picton drove her to the pig farm. They had sex and he placed handcuffs on one of her hands afterwards and cuffed the other hand to the bed. He proceeded to stab her in the abdomen several times. She was able to procure a knife of her own and stabbed him in self-defense. After he withdrew his own blade, she freed herself. She ran from the farm and was picked up by an unidentified motorist who drove her to a hospital. Soon after, Picton turned up at the same hospital to receive treatment for his wounds. The key to the handcuffs remained in his pocket. As previously mentioned, her testimony was considered suspect because of her status as a drug addict and prostitute. The charge was stayed, however the clothes and rubber boots Robert was wearing during the attack were collected as evidence and stored for several years. After he was arrested years later, investigators reclaimed this evidence and swabbed it for DNA. The results revealed that the DNA found on the boots matched up with two women on the missing women list. At night, Robert Picton was kept in a jail cell, where he insisted he was innocent. His popularity with serial killer groupies soared. He received letters from fans and from people who were anything but. He was placed in protective custody because the other inmates were disgusted by him and wished to do him harm. Picton remarked that the trial was fun for him. His popularity among serial killer enthusiasts continued to grow. On January 22, 2007, after a lengthy publication ban during which most coverage of the trial by the media was colored by speculation, most of which was based on falsehood, details revealed during the trial were finally disclosed to the public. Some examples. Human skulls had been sawed in half. The empty skulls were filled with hands and feet from other victims. Human remains were stuffed in a garbage bag. Blood-soaked clothing was found in Picton's personal trailer. 
Part of a victim's jaw and teeth were found in a pig pen near the slaughterhouse. A 22 caliber handgun with a dildo attached to the muzzle contained both his and the victim's DNA. According to Picton, the dildo was used as a silencer. By February 2007, more significant items of evidence were admitted at the trial. Some items police found inside of Robert's trailer during the last search warrant they executed a loaded 22 revolver with a dildo over the barrel and one round fired. Spanish fly. Boxes of 357 Magnum handgun ammunition. Night vision goggles. Two pairs of fake fur-lined handcuffs. A syringe filled with three milliliters of a blue liquid that investigators determined was windshield wiper fluid. Photos of Mona Wilson's remains in a garbage can were found in the slaughterhouse. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Hi, I'm Karina Bemisterfer, host of Morning Cup of Murder, your daily true crime podcast. Yes, you heard me right. Daily true crime. Every day, Morning Cup of Murder tells you a straightforward, short-form story about murder, true crime, cold cases, disappearances, serial killers, cults, and more. And I do that all in under 15 minutes. With over three years of stories and over 20 million downloads, the Morning Cup of Murder podcast has become a staple of so many people's daily routines. So why not add it to yours? Stream Morning Cup of Murder everywhere you listen to podcasts. And remember, stay safe. The staff of the crime lab identified 80 different DNA profiles from the scene, half male, half female. In a videotaped interview with Picton's friend, Scott Chubb, he reported that Picton advised him on a good way to kill a female heroin addict, inject her with windshield washer fluid. Andrew Bellwood, in another taped interview, disclosed that Picton told him he murdered prostitutes by handcuffing and strangling them. He proceeded from there to bleeding them, gutting them, and feeding them to the pigs. The jury was so horrified by the details, they were given recesses to recover from them. Associates of Picton were cross-examined, and their testimonies were often found to be full of discrepancies. That, where the character of the witness was believed to be spotty due to criminal behavior and drug use. However, another witness was to give damning testimony that stood up to scrutiny when the others had not. He was an undercover cop posing as a criminal in the jail where Picton was being held. He struck up a conversation with Picton in the holding area. At one point, Picton admitted to the officer that he killed 49 women. He went on to say that his only regret regarding the murders was that he didn't kill 50. When probed for an explanation, he stated that he idolized serial killer Gary Ridgway and he wanted to beat the Green River killer's body count by one. As he put it, he wanted to have, quote, one more than Gary, unquote. He told the agent that the only reason he got caught was that he had gotten, quote, sloppy. Robert Picton was found guilty on six counts of second-degree murder, but not guilty on six counts of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to 25 years in prison 
with no possibility of parole for second-degree murder. This kind of human monster would have received the death penalty or consecutive life sentences in the United States. In Canada, a sentence of 25 years is the maximum penalty for murder. In some cases, a judge may designate a suspect as a dangerous offender if they feel they are incapable of being reformed. A famous example of this is Paul Bernardo. If Picton doesn't die in prison, he'll be released at the age of 90, if he is lucky. Each of the families of the proven victims received $50,000 in compensation. They draw a little comfort from this. Many feel that the failure of local police to notify women of the low track that a serial killer was stalking them was a crime in and of itself. A lawsuit was launched against the Vancouver Police Department in an effort to seek justice. The following are a sample of the profiles of the women Robert Picton has been known to have murdered. Serena Abbotsway, date of birth, August 20th, 1971. Occupation, prostitute and community activist. Last seen, August of 2001. Serena Abbotsway was considered to be a special needs person due to having been born with fetal alcohol syndrome. She was said to have a childlike disposition. As an adult, she still owned Barbie dolls and teddy bears. She was 29 when she disappeared. She had participated in community marches that demanded investigations into the disappearances of women from the downtown east side of Vancouver. She wrote a poem to the victims and posted it online. This is a sample. When you went missing each and every year, we all fought so hard to find you. You were all part of God's plan. He probably took most of you home, but he left us with a very empty spot. At the time of her disappearance, police had issued a warrant for her arrest for shoplifting chocolate bars. Due to beatings and drug use, most of her teeth were missing. She never received much of a formal education due to the complications of fetal alcohol syndrome. She began her career in the sex trade when a boyfriend introduced her to drugs and then forced her to work the streets. Most of her relationships were abusive. One date beat her into a coma. During the day, she hustled men to buy her drugs and alcohol. Her nights were dedicated to prostitution. She became involved with a local church and sometimes helped those who were badly in need of charity. Emotionally, Serena was very strong and did not allow the grim environs of low track to keep her down for long. Mona Wilson, date of birth, January 3rd, 1975. Children, one son. Last seen, November of 2001. Mona Wilson was born on the Oche's Indian Reservation in Alberta. She was placed with the Garleys, a foster family that resided on a hobby farm. To quote her foster brother, I remember her smile. I remember what a great girl she was. She would have been a great wife and a great mother. She had true love in her heart. She lived with the Garleys from the ages of 8 to 14. Before she moved to the Garley farm, she had spent a period in a treatment center after she was found cowering in the hallway of an apartment building. She had been beaten. At the Garley farm, she was eager to contribute. She did her chores assiduously and without complaint. She enjoyed going to church with the family, but was too much of a tomboy to enjoy wearing dresses. After six years, she was placed with a single mother who had a son. This was to be her last foster household. She set foot into the real world at the age of 16. She lived in the east end of Vancouver. That was when her childhood ended, and it would see the last of the presence of love in her life. 
She still called the Garleys once a month. She didn't mention to them that she'd become addicted to heroin and had turned to prostitution to support her habit. She refused to visit them, but would send photos from time to time. At the age of 25, she faced criminal charges for the first time. Theft, false pretenses, and fraud. She attempted to quit her addiction to heroin, but with little success. Jacqueline McDonald, date of birth, June 6, 1976, born in Ontario, raised in Trail, British Columbia. Children, one daughter, last seen January 6, 1999. Jacqueline McDonald distinguished herself considerably from her peers in the low-track sex trade. She was highly intelligent, well-read, and more like a hippie than the common drug addict. She was bursting with potential, according to Elaine Allen, who knew her from a drop-in center in Vancouver's Lower East Side for prostitutes. To quote Allen, she was a good kid. She was from small-town BC, and she just had that casual small-town friendliness. Whenever Jacqueline visited the drop-in center, she would rummage through a donation bin looking for books and would often leave with one or two. As Allen recalled, she was a smart cookie. She was well-read. She liked to discuss the books that she read. She liked to discuss ideas, politics. She said McDonald kept abreast of what was happening in the world outside of low track. She'd been exposed to things as a person growing up, ideas, and the news. Despite being above average in intelligence, Jacqueline struggled in high school and did not graduate. She dropped out when she became a mother at the age of 18. At first, she was elated by the child's presence in her life It was inspired to behave more responsibly. Most of the money she made was invested in her daughter's care. However, years later, she dated a drug addict in recovery, and when he fell off the wagon, he brought her with him. Due to the complications of her addiction, she was no longer able to care for her daughter. She surrendered custody to her mother and stepfather. Jacqueline became heavily immersed in the drugs and prostitution racket on the low track. Not for long, though. Months after she settled in, she disappeared. Diane Rock. Given Diane Rock's background, you would never have expected her to so much as set foot in Vancouver's downtown east side. She was from a small town in southern Ontario. She married young, which is not uncommon in such a place. She had five children and married again. She did what she could to provide for her kids as she dreamed of one day moving to Vancouver. She was the daughter of a teenage mother and was adopted by the Marin family when it became clear her mother could not provide for her. Though they were a happy family while Diane was growing up, the situation changed when Diane entered puberty. She was extroverted and high-spirited, but she also had a tendency to get into mischief. She was also stubborn and temperamental, with a penchant for playing pranks. She also hated going to school. Carrying on her birth mother's legacy, she too had a child in her teens. She was 16. She got pregnant and had another baby when she was 17. She had another child. She and the father separated after a few years. She supported her kids with income she earned as a nurse's aide in a nursing home. Coming by a daytime babysitter proved difficult, so she took a night job. She became a stripper. Her mother didn't approve, but she drove her to and from the club knowing how much financial strain Diane was dealing with. Diane felt ashamed and embarrassed about being an exotic dancer, and she turned to drugs to cope with those feelings. To escape the criticism of her local town folk, she moved with her children to another Ontario town and continued her career as a stripper there. She met a man there, married him, and had another child. 
She continued to struggle with addiction. Later that year, they moved to Vancouver. Her husband got a job paving driveways. They had another child, and Diane was hired to care for mentally disabled adults. She also studied to be a registered nurse's assistant. In February 2001, Diane was visited by her foster mother, Ella. By this point, Diane and her life had undergone a significant transformation. Diane lost custody of her children and was due to fight for custody in court. She stole money from Ella. In April of that year, Diane took a leave of absence from work and never returned. Though she was known to be tough, despite cutting a petite figure, in April 2002, Robert Picton was charged with her murder. The police informed Ella that Diane had been turning tricks to support her drug addiction. The Marins were dumbfounded. Heather Bottomley, date of birth, August 17, 1976. Children, two. Last seen, April of 2001. Growing up in the suburban district of New Westminster, British Columbia, Heather Bottomley was remembered by her best friend Daniel Montreal for her sense of humor. She enjoyed acting out skits in her family's backyard. She also enjoyed sports. She had a happy life with her family. However, this framework was soon to crumble. In grade nine, she elected to drop out of school with a friend. She eventually returned and graduated, but the pattern of self-destruction reintroduced itself when she began dating a boy who introduced her to drugs. It got worse from there. She became pregnant. Years later, Danielle paid her a visit when Heather was living in Vancouver's downtown east side, and she was shocked. Heather was living with her boyfriend in a basement apartment and was pregnant with their second child. They struggled to provide for their family. She considered quitting drugs, but her resolve to do so was not strong. Then she was just gone. Her uncle was quoted as saying, I didn't know my niece too well, but she was a very outgoing, loving person. Thank you for listening to the Human Monsters Podcast. This is Morgan Rector. Bye for now.